pursuing the truth, living in love. Veritas is a grassroots network of Catholic young adults growing together in Christ. For more information or to see a schedule of Veritas events, visit catholicveritas.com. That's catholicveritas.com. On today's podcast, we are featuring a Monk's Cellar event with one of our favorite speakers, Brian Kelso. Brian is a licensed marriage and family therapist with a gift for leading people in recovery and healing. In this episode, Brian discusses how through Christ, our wounds can be transformed into glory. Let's tune in. Let's just begin together in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, Son of Mary, we give you great thanks and praise for calling us together tonight. We ask your blessing upon us, upon our speaker, Brian, that he might draw each of us nearer to your pierced heart. And we thank you, Lord, for all of the blessings that you've showered upon us this Lent as we follow you to Calvary. Mother Mary, we consecrate our hearts and our families to your immaculate heart that you might make of us something presentable to your son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So our speaker tonight uh, converted to the Catholic faith 15 years ago. Since then, he's been doing some just truly remarkable work for souls throughout the diocese. Many of you have benefited from his work or at least have friends. And probably all of you have friends that have benefited from his work. Uh, is, it can't be overstated, the work that he's done for souls uh, through his counseling therapy work. And uh, he's, he's truly a man of God. I don't say that lightly. Uh, and so we're grateful that he's here tonight with his family. His wife, Liz, and his daughter, Joy, are here also. And uh, this is his third time speaking for us. The last time he spoke, actually the second to last time he spoke for us, it was so powerful that there was this groundswell of demand and you get, everybody said, like, you have to bring him back next month. So we brought him back a consecutive month for another packed talk. So um, we can't do that next month. So just hold your horses. Unfortunately, we're bringing the Dominican sisters out from Nashville next month. But um, uh, just uh, I encourage you to listen to what you hear tonight with, uh, with an open and prayer, prayerful heart uh, because... Um, we're in for a treat. So please uh, keep him in prayer as you do that, as he speaks to us, because tonight might very well be a night of healing for many of us. So please give a big round of applause to our good friend Brian Kelso. Thank you, John. That's, that's a very nice introduction. Humble. It's a pleasure to see you all here tonight. And... As you all know, the topic is depression, anxiety, and loneliness. Popular. 
what I call pain symptoms of the soul. So I'm going to quickly go through a couple of um, rudimentary things. If you've heard my talk last time, it'll be a little bit repetitive, but I'm going to try to move through that stuff quickly to get onto the, the meat of it. So in order to understand the pain symptoms of the soul, we have to understand the soul a little bit better. And so when we talk about the soul, it's very much like the body. The human person is made up of two parts, body and soul. And so most of us know about the wounds to the body or how the body works, the, the needs of the body. When the body gets hurt, there's really two ways it gets hurt. It gets hurt by deprivation. For instance, not enough, not enough water, not enough food, clothing, shelter. These are the basic needs of the soul, I mean needs of the body. And so when those don't get met, we can start having problems. You don't get enough sleep, start having problems. It's the same with the soul. When the soul gets deprived of its basic needs or if it has a traumatic impact, like the body has a traumatic impact, that's another way it gets wounded, the soul is the same way. And so in order to start understanding the realities and the, and the pain symptoms of the souls, how the soul gets wounded, we have to understand how it gets deprived. So the basic needs of the soul are the need for respect, trust, connection, feeling valued or cherished, and physical touch. Now, these needs of the soul are non-negotiable, just like the needs of the body. If you don't get those met adequately, you start having a deprivational wound to the soul. And so it's going to be a problematic, just like when you have a, a, a wound to the body. For instance, if, if I have a broken leg, I'm going to have a hard time getting onto the soccer field and playing with any kind of you know, ability or any kind of, uh, kind of place where it's going to create a good result. And so it's the same way with our soul. But however, most of us are not aware of the needs of our soul. We're not aware of how our soul gets injured because it's always been injured since our childhood. I'll get into that more in a minute. So again, we can be injured by the deprivation for the needs of our soul, but we can also be injured by traumatic impact. And most of us are aware of you know, what they call child abuse, right? So in our childhood, we can have overt child abuse and we can have the covert stuff, the stuff that's not obvious at all. Um, everybody has the stuff that's not obvious because unless you happen to be mm, Jesus, um, <laughs> you're not going to have parents that were perfect. Um, and so most of us... We don't have parents that are godlike. Some of us have some that are pretty holy, but most of us, uh, we know that um, they're not so good. And my daughter's here tonight. She can attest to my weaknesses <laughs> and my liabilities. <laughs> so that's the reality. None of us had God as parents. So we had somebody in our life that we thought could meet the needs of our, of our soul, but they were unable. And so if you don't have any obvious if you look back in your family and say, no, I didn't, I didn't grow up in, uh, I didn't have child abuse, um, then you most likely just had the overt, I mean, sorry, the covert. An example of covert um, wounds to the soul from parents that are actually you would define as good parents would be um, ignorant statements but damaging statements. Like if you're raised in a Catholic home, you might hear something like, um, 
You can go to hell for that. Don't do that. You'll go to hell for that. That's a, that's a, that's in a wound to the soul because a child can't really wrap their brain around what that means. And they start feeling these things called shame wounds um, rooted in the fact that we have somehow have to earn our way to heaven. And that's a, that's a, that's a problem. And so the other one is, of course, I mean, that's just one example. I could go on, but I'm not going to. The other wound, um, the covert, hidden wound, is something much more uh, insidious that it's rare nowadays that parents would be aware of this. And just out of curiosity, how many parents are here tonight? A few. Okay, all right. It's a, so as a parent, I'll be, I'm going to let you know of a common problem that how you covertly will wound your children. And most all of us could relate to this. I know my, my daughter could. <laughs> um, when we blow it as parents, when we do something stupid or inappropriate, um, the, the challenge or how we wound our soul or how we wound our child's soul is by not going to them and saying, you know what, I, I'm sorry what I did was wrong, and you know what, I'm going to continue to do wrong things. I'm not going to do them on purpose, but I'm going to. And ultimately, the reason I do wrong things is because I'm not God. But there is a God. And you can teach your child this when they become, when they can exchange in sentences and start understanding the concept of God. There is a God who is perfect. And he is the one, when you can't get your need met from me, when I blow it on these basic needs of the soul, when I distrust you or disrespect you or don't touch you or whatever it is you need, you can actually go to this God. And so, sadly, though, most of us didn't get that kind of a training. And so we have this wound to our soul, which I'll get more to in a minute. But this is something that I think all of us could relate to. We didn't have parents that were freely and readily admitting their weakness, their inability, and pointing us to the one that does have that strength and ability to meet those needs of our soul that are, again, non-negotiable. We can't get by without these, okay? So here's an example of, real quickly, the wounds to the soul. And I love this. Uh, I remember my, my, uh, my sister's mother-in-law, we call her Grandma Faith. She's been in our family for a long time. I remember her sharing a story with me about how she had a pain in her back. She goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, you've got arthritis, you're an old lady, here's pain medication. And she was like, no, I am an old lady, I do have arthritis, that's not arthritis. And she bullied the doctor until the doctor says, okay, I'll, I'll take a picture of your back. And so she takes, he takes a picture of it, sure enough, she's got a malignant tumor growing in her back. And they, of course, caught it early, got it out, and she, she went on. Now... This is the difference between a pain symptom and a actual wound. The cancer is the wound. That's the actual problem. And so, so this is what we're going to be focusing on tonight. Pain symptoms are depression, anxiety, loneliness. Those are a few pain symptoms of the soul. And this is why we can pray all day long for God to take this away. As a general rule... A loving God is not going to take away the pain symptom because the pain symptom points to the wound. And we need to get that wound healed. And if the pain symptom goes away, ah, there's no problem. And so that's what we're going to try to get at tonight is what are the wounds to the soul that actually drive the anxiety 
depression and loneliness. Now, when I talk about anxiety, I'm talking about like a generalized anxiety where you just feel this kind of uptightness or when something um, that you don't need to worry about and you can't stop worrying about it. It's not like somebody's chasing you with a gun. Um, you should be anxious about that to some degree. Now, that's normal anxiety. Or when you almost get hit by a car or something like that, that's normal healthy anxiety. But when we're anxious about something that we really shouldn't necessarily be anxious about or when we just have that generalized sense of anxiety, that's the anxiety I'm talking about. The things that we're primarily aware of are actions and sometimes our feelings. When we catch ourselves like being mad at, our, mad at ourselves or beating ourselves up for, for some sort of thing we did or sometimes the way we feel, and we can get trapped in these things. But sadly, today, most of us don't pay that much attention to our thoughts. But the reality is, there's two things that cause our feelings. It's primarily thoughts, and the other one is what we're talking about, wounds. Because when, you know, somebody, if I was to kick you in the shins, you would feel pain. And that pain would immediately affect your feelings. It didn't have anything to do with your thinking at all. But also, your thinking primarily. It would hurt worse if you thought that I kicked you because you're a bad person and you deserve to be kicked. That would, that would hurt worse than is if you thought, oh man, what's your problem? What'd you kick me for? You'd be more confused. But if, you, if, you thought, if, if he thought he deserved it, then he would, um, it would hurt worse. And so, again, our thinking and pain, of course, is what controls to the, the feelings that we feel. And then the feelings, of course, control our actions. And so, and this, oh, I'm not going to get into that tonight, but this is what drives repetitive things. But tonight we're talking about how we repetitively feed the pain symptom or the wound that feeds the pain symptom of our soul, um, whether it's anxiety, depression, or loneliness. Those are all very popular and most of us uh, struggle with those things different times. Let's talk about the depression and anxiety and these, these bad habits. Because like I was just talking about how we inadvertently but effectively feed our anxiety or depression. The, just simply put, and again, I'm not going to go into this in a large amount tonight, but simply put, what feeds this wound to our soul or these pain symptoms that enhance the wound, or that keep the wound alive, or that feed it, or oh, there are more symptoms is a better way of saying it. But the, the part that we feed the wound with is actually the belief. Our belief is what sustains the wound. And sometimes, especially if we have, let's take an example, like if we have a, uh, if we grew up with this belief, let's just take the real innocuous one that I talked about. We had parents that didn't teach us that there was a God that could take care of our deficits. Because that's what you're teaching as a parent. You're teaching them when you say that, that, oh, here's, there's a God out there that can help us with our de deficits. And you're modeling that for, the, for your child by being vulnerable and sharing that. And, it's like, and being okay with it. Because you know that your shame, as it were, of, and being an adequate parent is actually okay. You don't have to be ashamed of that. It's okay to be inadequate because what does inadequacy enable us to? As our Lord put it, one of my favorite retranslations, I, again, I said this last time, so it's a little bit repetitive for those who were here last time, but the first thing out of Jesus' mouth 
the very first words in his very first official sermon, and this is my rough translation, blessed are those who know they're completely screwed without the help of God. But what do they get? Everything God has to offer, otherwise known as blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of God. So when we get to this place where we can actually be comfortable with our deficits, not for the sake of being apathetic about them, but for the sake of knowing it's not actually us that fixes or heals them. It's God. And so, so that's the, 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 uh, the task, if there was a task, if I could phrase it that way, is to recognize that it's okay. So, again, I digress here, but recognizing that our weakness is okay. So a parent that can do that, getting back to the parental thing, can model for their child that, you know what? It's okay to be broken. It's okay to get things wrong. And there's a God that not only can, but wants to help us with this wound or this habit or this brokenness. And, and that he doesn't look at us and judge us like often our parents might inadvertently but effectively do. But he actually cares for us and he, and he loves us and accepts us. And so we were able to bring these things to him. But since most of us didn't have that kind of parental training, we have this wound, this belief that says, oh my gosh, I gotta get my act together. I gotta figure this out. I gotta make something happen here. I gotta fix myself. Again, we don't think this consciously because most people that are, have a little bit of catechesis and teaching, especially in our beloved Catholic faith, that we know, intellectually anyway, that we don't fix ourselves. We don't make ourselves well, as it were. We don't deliver ourselves from brokenness. But this subconscious training that we have from our parental wound and from the other wound, which I'll get to in a minute, is this training that keeps us kind of stuck. And so the other wound, I don't know, does that, does that make sense to everybody? I'm hoping that, that makes sense. Um, now, the other wound that we're born with, of course, is this wound of original sin. And that is this belief, this compulsory belief that supports this very same thing. And that is, God does not have my back. If I'm going to be okay, or if I'm going to manage this, or I'm going to get myself out of trouble, or if I'm going to um, get well or get better somehow, i got to manage this. Again, it's not necessarily overt. Sometimes it is, but it's, um, it's covert, and it's just like this programming. But I'll get into that later as I get into the healing stuff. But the, but the bottom line is, is for us to be aware of this compulsory thing that we inherited. Because what happened in the Garden of Eden? And Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and the evil one had to convince them of one thing first. Because what did they actually want? They wanted what was good. They wanted to be like God. All of us are destined to be like God. That's written inside of us. We're always compelled towards the perfect. Every human being is. And so this compulsion to perfect ourselves is actually good. And that's how the evil one used that great desire against them. And he got them to believe that God doesn't care about you. If you're going to get this thing, this knowledge of good and evil to be like God, you got to Take it in your own hand and manage it. So this is a, a primal wound that, again, is what? The belief. The belief is the wound. 
that I got to manage it. And oftentimes, like I said, it's not conscious. It's subconscious. It's kind of programmed in the background. So let's talk about healing of these wounds. And this is what I really wanted to focus on the, um, tonight. Oh, wait, I wanted to say one more thing about this bad habit of how we keep these things alive. And I'll, I'll get into this will make more sense as I get into it on the healing stuff. But the compulsive habit is believing these, these beliefs subconsciously and really kind of being unaware of them because it's in our thoughts, our kind of subconscious programmed thoughts that we're not thinking about. But we just keep running them over and over. And the way that this presents itself, which is the first step in noticing the problem, and that is starting to pay attention to your thoughts, but you'll notice, this is what I share with people often, start noticing your thoughts and notice how you let your mind dwell on the things that you can't control, the things you have no ability to control. Um, and so as we start noticing that stuff, then we can start saying, Lord, have mercy upon me. Help me to think instead about what I do control. In other words, St. Paul says it this way, whatsoever is good and beautiful and excellent and worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And, as he says a little bit later, the God of peace will be with you. This is the path to peace. Is again, how we, what we let our mind dwell on and how we learn with practice to, and with the help of God, to navigate that. Okay? So, so that's what, uh, that's kind of that. And so, I just wanted to reiterate. So, noticing our thoughts. So, the first thing I want to talk about in these healing, in the, our opportunities for healing, is discovering these subconscious lies. Discovering this compulsive attitude of, I've got to manage it myself. I've got to get this done. Um, and so when we, when we think about this, the, the antidote, so to speak, is again, noticing these compulsive thoughts, and then really there's three things that we have to, to work on in this um, task, if you will. And that is, the first one is, Humility. And what is humility? And this, we have to ask for these things and then try to step into them in our mind. The first one is this task of humility. And what does it really mean? It means nothing more than knowing the truth about yourself, the truth about God and the truth about, about others. And this, when we can start internalizing this and start asking God, what's really true here? How do we actually figure this out, what the lies that we believe? Because most of us are just not aware of these things. And like James says, we have not because we ask not. For the most part, we don't bother even asking God for um, these kinds of answers. How am I keeping myself stuck, God? We're instead usually focused on if you would just change this or fix this or fix this person or take away this habit I have. Or there's, we're usually focused on some sort of control that we need God to fix so that we can be at peace. Um, again, we don't necessarily recognize that as control. But again, this is again one of those subconscious programmings that we have. So, so humility is the first one. And again, how do we become humble? We have to ask for it. It's not something we can figure out on our own. But again, most of us don't 
really like to pray for humility. We try to avoid humiliation, as humiliation is, in fact, the path to humility. But most of us, when we think about humiliation, it's like, oh, no, I don't want that. That's bad. Because, again, if we're humiliated, we're, we look bad, and if we're the only ones controlling it, then that's not so good. So we, we're programmed, again, to, to run from this. So the second one is, so the first one's humility. second one is detachment. We have to, again, beg for this grace to let go of the things that we're compulsively trying to control. And why are we compulsively trying to control it? Because no, because God doesn't really have our back in these things because our parents didn't teach us this as a young age. So the programming is, you know, you need to work harder at not spilling the milk. You need to work harder at not doing this or forgetting that. You get on it instead of saying, oh, you know, I, I don't expect you to actually do this, but I expect you to work on it. And how? By asking God, and this is how you do it. We don't, we don't have that kind of training. So in a certain sense, we have to get reprogrammed here. And that's, of course, this detachment is learning the habit of letting go. Letting go of this compulsory thing that we inherited from the garden to hold on, to take it in our own hand, to manage it ourselves. That's the, that's the thing we need to get rid of is detachment. And so we need to ask for that. We don't get detachment by trying harder. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Anyone who's tried to be more detached, they try, 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 it just doesn't work. It's actually not supposed to work. And why is it not supposed to work? Because of the first thing out of Jesus' mouth. If we didn't desperately need God, we wouldn't be asking him. And that's why, as I, I didn't say earlier, but that's why the only people that get the kingdom of God, that all that God has to offer, the only people that get it are the ones who are asking. Because God is this respectful lover. He doesn't force himself on us. He waits for us to ask. He's the perfect gentleman, as some of the saints have described him. So, so he's going to wait for us to ask. But there's only one thing that motivates us to ask, sadly, because of our human condition. Pain. Pain. So it's just a really sad but real part of the human condition. So, so detachment is number two. Humility, number one. Detachment, number two. And number three, remembrance. And what do we have to remember? The simple thing. Well, it's simple. It's hard, but it's simple. And that is the reality of the cross. When I was a Protestant, I always looked at that Catholic crucifix, and I thought, that is so stupid. Jesus is not on the cross. He's resurrected. Why is he still up there? Why are the Catholics obsessed with this, you know, so to speak, um, ancient, modern, I mean, our modern-day gas chamber? Why are the, the Catholics obsessed with this, this torturous, brutal, gruesome death? never made any sense to me. After I became Catholic and I started understanding redemptive suffering, I started to see, answer this crazy question. It's like, if God could do anything, he could save us any way he wants, why did he choose to be brutally tortured to death in the most gruesome way possible? What in the world was he thinking? It just seemed like a terrible plan to me. But the more I understand this human condition, he was showing us in the most loving way possible and this is what remembrance is, to remember that if he could turn the most gruesome, horrific, criminal injustice in 
to a perfect miracle, if he could do that, if he could do that with that gruesome mess that he did on the cross, then he can do it with my gruesome mess. And so when we walk into the church and we see this, this gruesome image, we're reminded, oh, there is hope for me. If he could turn that mess into a perfect miracle, he can turn my mess into a miracle. And so that's the third thing, is remembering that reality, this reality of how our Lord knows how to turn utter disaster into this amazing gift of resurrection, transformation. But again, most of us, we are not programmed to believe that's even possible. It doesn't really make sense. Of course, if you're well-catechized Catholic, it makes, it makes some degree of sense up here, but to really navigate that into our pain of depression, anxiety, or loneliness, to, to navigate into that and to really feel a tremendous relief, that's difficult. Most of us really struggle with that. But again, getting back to this thing, this is why you can pray and pray and pray to take this away. Loneliness is a great example. It's like we can feel really lonely, and we can feel lonely in a relationship, and we can feel lonely out of a relationship. It, it goes both ways. But the more popular is out of relationship, so I'll talk about that one. One of the things that we do, just as an example of this, and I remember being single and being lonely and looking at married people and thinking, if only I could have that. If I could only have be like that couple. If only I could be like this couple. <laughs> if only I could, I'd look at these other couples and I'd think, oh, if I just had that, I could be at peace. Sound familiar? God, please take away this loneliness. Provide for me a spouse like this. <laughs> Provide this for me, and that will solve my loneliness problems. And the truth of the matter is, and anyone who has been married and has experienced loneliness knows it doesn't solve the problem. And in fact, many times, it brings more problems because if you're a, so to speak, control freak, you don't really do well in a relationship as a general rule. And anyone who's been married, <laughs> so it's like if you're telling God what he needs to do to fix you all the time, you're a control freak. It's that simple. <laughs> and so this is, a again, this compulsive thing we've got going that we don't even realize. We just think it's normal. Well, wait a minute. I've got these needs. I've got to get them met. So this person who I'm supposed to be with or this person that I should have, if I don't have them, I'm out of luck, as it were. This is the, again, this hidden kind of belief that is wounding us. That's the, you can see how that's connected to this pain symptom of loneliness. So, so again, what's the, what's the antidote here? Um, I'd like to talk about three things that are in the Catholic faith that are amazingly powerful and Again, most of these things, I mean, they're like, I often tell my, my clients, this is your prescription. I'm going to write you a prescription here. This is what you're supposed to do. Um, and, of course, it's, since I'm not a psychiatrist, I can't give drugs out. Most of them would rather have drugs. <laughs> um, it makes it, it would seem like, well, that's easy. Can I, can, I don't know how many times, I've had a dollar for every time I heard, can you just give me a pill for this? That's what I need. Um, <laughs> But, of course, there isn't. 
But there is a prescription that is significantly more powerful than any pill you could ever take. And so I always liked uh, the Huey Lewis song, I want a new drug. Because it's like, all the drugs that I had, they aren't working so well. <laughs> and I tried a bunch of different ones, including control, because control is a form of drug, and an effective drug, like most of them. Uh, they work for a very short season. Some of them work a little longer, but ultimately, they just run out. They just they can't deliver. And so control is one of those drugs, as it were. So here's the deal. There's three things in the Catholic faith that I'm going to talk about that are powerful, powerful prescriptions for antidotes, as it were, for this condition, for this, these um, wounds to the soul. Because, again, if you don't heal the wound, then it would be inappropriate to take away the pain symptom. You would somehow be denying your human reality. It's like, you know, if I re reached over here and kicked him in the shins, again, like I said earlier, and he didn't double over in pain, then there's something wrong with him. There's something inappropriate there. So, and this is one of the things I, I love to tell my clients that come to me that are depressed, and they say they've been depressed for years, and I can point out how it's actually appropriate that they're depressed. In fact, I'm surprised after they tell me about their life that they're not even more depressed. It's like, oh, your, your faith is actually working pretty good here. Um, but you're not focused on that. You're focusing on what doesn't work, not what's actually working. Um, the fact that you're not in an institution somewhere or that you're not really addicted to a, a harsher substance is, is a miracle that God's gifting you something. But, and, and, I, and I say that in a little bit in jest, but it's really actually quite true. Um, that without these things, especially in our faith, we take it for granted. So I'm, I'm hoping today that I can point out a few really practical ways that you can use these three things in the church that are amazingly popular. The first one is Eucharistic adoration. Now, before I knew um, what I was doing, so to speak, <laughs> um, I had no clue what really adoration was when I first started to go to adoration before I was even Catholic I would go there and I would just sit there and look at this thing up there and and have just kind of this really torn kind of part of me you know, thinking how can that be God and it, it, it doesn't make any sense but this 2,000 year old body of Christians has believed this that that actually is God in a mystic, mystical kind of way. So again, I would just ask God, help me, help me in my unbelief. I don't really believe that's you, so help me believe it, it's possible for that to be you. So that's what I started with. And I started doing this before I was even Catholic um, because I was that desperate. Um, anyway, my daughter can tell you, you know, how desperate I was <laughs> back in those years because she was old enough to see and to experience how desperate I was. So, but, and again, that pain is what brought me there. If I hadn't have this, this intense pain that I finally gave up, I finally started believing that I was completely toast without the help of God. There was no chance for me. And so I had to put my faith in something that looked like a cracker. I, that's how desperate I was. And it's like, well, you know, and I did, I'd been listening to the Catholic radio, and there was some degree of, okay, there's some real continuity, there's some real depth to the Catholic Church that I never saw or believed possible. And so I was mildly interested. 
but mostly crazy desperate with this pain. So anyway, the, the reality, though, of Eucharistic adoration, getting back to it, is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about a few tasks that are, are really critical. And the first one is that, attacking the belief. If, in fact, there is a problem inside of you, it's completely appropriate to say, I can look at that, and I don't really believe that's God. Or that I can see that, and maybe that is God, and that's faith. But he doesn't care about me. That's the theological virtue of hope. He's there, yeah, I believe, but he, he doesn't care about me. Otherwise, how come he hasn't fixed these problems that I've clearly told him I need fixed? He's not listening. He doesn't care about me. So again, these subconscious beliefs, exposing them, but being able to go there and recognize there's a power greater than myself that exists there, and I have free access to it. They don't even charge for it. They don't charge anything for it. It's like, it's free. And all we have to do is what? Ask. Ask. Show up and ask. That's all we have to do. Uh, it just still boggles my mind that the Eucharistic Adoration Chapels aren't full. But I have a little bit of a clue why they aren't. And that's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you a few tools of what to do there. So the first is look at your wounds if, and the beliefs. If you struggle with the lack of faith, not really believing that that's Jesus Christ in body, blood, soul, and divinity, if you don't really believe that, then ask God for the theological virtue of faith. And they call them theological virtues because there's absolutely nothing you can do to generate it within yourself. It's a gift you receive. I like using the example of how a woman gets pregnant. She can think about getting pregnant all day long. She would love to get pregnant. She wants to get pregnant. She can think about it, but it's never going to happen until she gets inseminated. That's the only way it's going to happen. And even then, she, her body has to be receptive. Not only does she have to be receptive, but her body has to be receptive for that to happen. And so, so this is why the church talks about receptivity all the time and our need for receptivity so that we can receive these theological virtues because we cannot generate them within ourselves. That's a gift that's implanted us to us. And how do we get it? By asking. It's just that simple. We have to ask and ask. So the theological virtue of faith and the next one, the theological virtue of hope, that that Eucharist up there, that what's in the monstrance, our Lord himself really cares for me. That my depression, my anxiety, my loneliness, my pain, whatever pain symptom the soul we're having, is something he deeply cares about. But he wants to get at the wound. And so what do we do in adoration? Jesus, help me to see my wound. Help me to know that I don't need to manage this myself, that I'm not supposed to, that my first step is recognizing this pain. God has allowed it because it's a path to him because he knows he's the, our ultimate answer. And so, so being able to beg for the grace of gratitude, if that's really true, he's given us this free gift, and he's loved us so much that he's given us or he's allowed this pain to come upon us, even though we're going to be mad at him, he would rather us be mad at him in the hopes that we will 
come to our senses, like the prodigal son, and come back to him and let go of this ridiculous notion that we have to manage it ourselves. So, so that's the, this first step. And so how do we step into this? There's a few ways um, that we can tangibly step into this. Now, I, I can't get into a lot of this stuff, but I've been studying a lot about the brain lately and this, the realities of the brain. And so one of the realities of the human brain is, is that our midbrain, where there's this part, this non-thinking, judging, reasoning part of the brain, and the, the center of the midbrain is this thing called the amygdala, and in the amygdala is this fight-or-flight response that we've all heard of. And so when we have a traumatic event, like not getting the needs of our soul met on a regular basis, or traumatic abuse of some sort, of the worst kind or the mildest kind, it doesn't matter, the needs of our soul get hurt, damaged, um, or a traumatic impact, then we have these wounds. And when those wounds happen, our, the, our, um, our brain, as it were, says, oh, danger, fight or flight. And so when we're in our fight or flight brain, that actually the, the, the pathways to our frontal lobe um, is blocked because our body is in survival mode. We have to, as it were, keep ourselves alive. This, that God's made us this way so that we can sustain ourselves, as it were so that the human body's sustainable. So he's programmed us this way for, for a good reason. But when it comes to wounds to the soul, and now these wounds to the soul are no longer a threat, it keeps us safe while we're in the middle of the threat, but now as adults, it's not really a threat, but we don't know that. We're still going on this programming. And so one of the ways to, that they've proven now with brain technology and this MRI technology where they can look at it, they've seen how to move, how people move from this fight or flight into the thinking, judging, reasoning part of the brain. And that is conjugating sentences. When you put sentences together that it, you just talk, you know, have you ever had the experience of being really uptight about something and you just called up a friend, you just talked to them and they didn't really say anything. You just talked, and they listened, and then you hung up, and you, you just felt better. It's like, oh, that feels better. I'm not sure why. Because when you conjugate sentences, it moves this scary fight-or-flight reactivity, forces you into this the prefrontal cortex here, which is the thinking, judging, reasoning, and you can kind of see, oh, I, I really don't have to be afraid of that. And you don't necessarily even come to that conclusion. It's just in a different part of your brain now. But without doing something to force that open, you're stuck in the fight-or-flight mode. And so journaling, writing sentences is another way of conjugating sentences. Um, and so, but even whispering, talking in a low voice, moving your mouth and putting those sentences together, that works too. Because um, you can do that in adoration. But you have to put sentences together or else you're still in this kind of fight-or-flight reactivity. And so, so it's a simple psychologically sound, scientifically sound way of letting our fearfully and wonderfully made bodies move us into this receptivity of grace that we know in our brains but are too afraid to let ourselves go into. So, so that's just a, a, an amazingly powerful thing to write about. Now when you write, you write about the things that scare you. You just let yourself process it with the one who actually can completely help us, our Lord himself. And even if we, you know, you can journal about things like, I don't even believe in this 
silly Eucharist thing. I don't believe in it. Or I can believe, yeah, that's good for everybody else, but it's not good for me. I just don't deserve it. I'm too big of a sinner. And God knows everything I've done, and so he doesn't want anything to do with me. You just write that stuff out. And you write about uh, maybe the, the lives of saints, or you write about whatever comes to your mind. God, help me to write about whatever I need to write about. Help me to trust you to even bring it to my mind, what I'm supposed to write about, because I have no freaking clue. That's a really good prayer. It's a very powerful prayer because what are you doing? You're doing that first beatitude, recognizing you're lost without the help of God. God, he just, he thrives on that because what are we doing if we're not doing that? We're saying, hold up over there, God. You just stay over there. I've got this. I can handle this. We're being Adam and Eve in the garden where we're just telling him, chill over there. I've got this. Sustaining that wound to our soul. So that, uh, I hope, makes sense. So the, the other thing to do, besides journaling, if you don't have paper and pen or something like that, you, didn't have, you forgot it that day, the other thing that's really powerful is our imagination. And that is most of us, I mean, I like using the example, if you're laying in bed at night, you just watched a scary movie about breaking and entering and people getting you know, hurt very badly, we'll say. Keep it clean. And... Um, and then so you watch a movie about this, you go to bed, and all of a sudden you hear a noise outside. And then, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my goodness, your imagination immediately goes to, you know, imagining people coming in and harming you or harming your family. And what happens in the body when your imagination runs with that? Things change inside of here. You can, you know, sometimes you'll get heart palpitations, you get sweaty palms, your hands will shake. You certainly can't go back to sleep. They're just you're really rattled. And there's actually nobody out there. It was the wind. It was a cat. But you invented in your mind with this power of your imagination, and boom, reality, at least physiological reality, things change. And so just an example of how we are bullied by our imagination. Now, now it gets the worst of us. So learning how to use this amazing gift, believe it or not, God gave us this power of imagination, not so we could brutalize ourselves with it. He gave it to us so we could use it for good. How do we learn how to use it for good? Any guesses? We ask. Ask. That's what we have to do. God, help me. Teach me how to use my imagination. I'm so bad at it. I need your help. There's no way I can fix my wrecked imagination. All I can think about is the worst possible, the worst case scenario. That's all I ever think about. Help me, God. Teach me how to use my imagination for good. So I'm going to give you an example how to use your imagination for good. So I'm going to just do this exercise. Everybody close their eyes. Close your eyes, and I want you to... Now, I want you to think about either some time in your life when you were really lonely, when you were really sad, when you were really kind of at a despairing place. You felt really lonely and sad. So imagine yourself there in that place. And now what I want you to imagine is either Jesus or Mary walking into the room. Again, and I would ask all of you, your angels, to help you imagine this because our angels have access to our imagination and our memory. So imagine Jesus himself or Mary or both walking into the room and they see their beloved child 
hurting badly. And just imagine them coming up to you and lifting you up off your feet or, or grabbing you and holding you in their arms. And you feel the touch of their body, the warmth of their body, and this tender, compassionate touch. You feel it. Just imagine how that feels in the midst of this loneliness. Now all of a sudden, it feels different. You feel this deep connection, and you're wondering. You're a little bit confused. It's like, how is this possible that Jesus himself is coming to me here? But he does. He is there. And you, you imagine his touch, and you imagine him just whispering in your ear and saying, I know things look bad, but I know what it's like for things to look bad. I know what that feels like. That's why I died on the cross, so that you could see that I would know, and I would know. And you imagine just saying that in your ear, and you imagine his touch, and you can start to feel the power of this connection just with your imagination. And you imagine him telling you that it is, and he squeezes you tighter and says, and he calls out all the things that you're terribly afraid of, terribly bothered about, and sad about. And he says, I know what it's like to be sad, and I can be there. I am there, just like my father was with me on the cross, and my mother was there. You're there with me. I'm there with you. And so you just imagine that, and you're asking Jesus to help you imagine it. And you're just letting yourself feel it. And so, again, you just put those thoughts together, and you just imagine that touch and that connection. And so, so you, can, you can open your eyes now, but if you want to, <laughs> or you can stay there. <laughs> that's, that's pretty tough to beat. Um, but this is an example of, and it works a lot better, um, I just wanted to give you an example of how that works. But it works best in adoration. There's a mystical power there that is, if we ask, that's there for us. And it's just, and I've experienced it. I experienced it when I didn't even believe in it, just because I went and I asked. I wasn't even Catholic. Um, and I experienced this mystical power there in ways that I never even imagined. But again, what got me there? The pain. So you let yourself go there with this pain, knowing that there's, it's possible. It's possible. And so when you don't know it's possible, that's the other thing you do in adoration. You ask, help me to believe it's possible. I don't believe it. Help me. Help me in my unbelief. So, so that's the, and the next thing that you do, so there's the first thing, journaling. Second thing, imagining. The third thing, and this is what I did really well in adoration when I first started going, and that is the second thing. What's the first thing Jesus said? Blessed are those who are toast without his help. I was doing that. I knew that. And the second thing that I did was blessed are those who weep and sob uncontrollably and let out their anger, their grief, and all of their hurts to God. For what do they get? Comfort. So let yourself weep. I remember I used to have to take a pile of Kleenex in there because I would just sob.
sob uncontrollably. I would sob uncontrollably about how I screwed up my life. I screwed up my children. I believed that they would never turn out right because I'd messed them up so bad. And, and I just was, I was toast. I just was like, and I just would just weep, sob uncontrollably, sometimes for the whole hour. Because um, now's the other thing. I wouldn't let myself cry. And that's, I, I don't have many people in my office that is, it's like, no, 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 I, I'm not going to cry. Why? Why don't you want to cry? And it takes me a while, but they're, usually we get to the truth is, if I start crying, I will never stop. I'll never stop. I can't let this out. It's, it's bigger than me. I can't let it out. And so we go to adoration and say, God, help me to believe that you can comfort me in my pain. Help me to believe it, because I don't believe it. I, don't, I believe i got to hold on to this. I don't believe you can manage it. I don't believe I could manage it. I, don't, I can't trust you with this pain, God. Teach me how to let it out. So that's the third thing that you work on in adoration. And, and the, what happens when you do one and two? See, the Beatitudes, are, there's a beautiful trajectory to the, the Beatitudes. So if you do one, then you do two, and that takes you right to number three, which is blessed are those who know they have the power to control it, or think they do, and they don't want to anymore. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They get everything, again, they get everything that they thought they needed, but they recognize they don't actually need it. It's, it's remarkable. Or God actually gives them what they need. What do they need? Those wounds to their soul healed and the pain symptoms to go away. But again, usually we're telling God what we think he should do to make these pain symptoms go away. We're not asking for another agenda. We're not asking for another way because we don't believe there is because why? We're control freaks. We gotta control it. We gotta manage it ourselves because of that wound. Again, not on purpose. It's a subconscious training. So, so that's kind of the, the small introduction to adoration. So the next one is confession. This is, again, people, Catholics so misunderstand this confession thing. I remember the year when after, I, or the couple of years after I decided I did actually want to become Catholic, but I couldn't because I had way too much baggage. <laughs> um, so I, I couldn't come into the church. It took a couple of years. Um, and so anyway, during that time, I remember just longing to go to confession, longing to be able to go to this place that I had come to learn was this place that Catholics get to go where they can take this anger, frustration, brokenness, addicted to stupidity, um, self-hatred, self-doubt, all this stuff. We can take it someplace and we can say, I'm a mess. There's nothing I could do and just get a loving embrace and forgiveness. It blows my mind why anybody wouldn't want that and why the, the, I just still kind of boggles my mind why the, the lines for confession aren't crazy long. Selfishly, I'm kind of glad <laughs> I'm going to go to confession, but ultimately it's not good. But this, because again, most Catholics have no idea the gold mine they're sitting on for healing and I'll tell you why what I've come to learn, because most people don't really understand what confession's about. Most Catholics, I've come to see, 
think that going to confession is where you go and you tell the priest all the bad stuff you did. So you get, get free from all this bad stuff. And then um, he's going to give you a blessing, and then you get to go away. And you get to breathe a sigh of relief that, okay, I got that over with. Um, I did my duty. Um, and so most people, they just don't think about this heavenly reality of it's, it's like what I call medicine to the soul. It's medicine on that wound. We're going and we're saying, I am hopelessly and helplessly addicted to this behavior. There's no way I'm going to get free, but I believe that you want to give it to me. And I'm showing up in hopes that you'll give that to me. Please increase my faith to believe it's possible. Now, sadly, again, most of the time, this is another reason why we don't like to go to confession as Catholics. We go to confession and we confess the things that we hate. We confess the things that, that bother us the most, but we haven't exactly let go of it. Like, for instance, um, we might confess uh, if we have an addiction. Um, like a, um, let's take a popular addiction these days, pornography. We have an addiction to porn. So we go and we're begging God, please, please set me free. I did this again. I fell again. I'm just... I just need help with that, God. Again, porn is another pain symptom of the soul. It's not actually the problem. Now, this one is one that actually happens to be grave matter, too. So, you know, that's, that's a problem. But, but the reality is it's not actually the root problem. Any addiction, name it, whatever it is, any compulsory addiction, even if it is grave matter, substance abuse or something like that, it's not actually the problem. The problem is we're control freaks. We're not getting what we want. And so we're upset about it. We're wounded, and so we have to numb ourselves. We're hiding from that, that lack of ability to control. And so, so this, is the, this is the proverbial wound to the soul, as it were, this belief that, God, I can't ever be good or faithful until I kick this habit. I can't ever get what I need until I manage this. We're controlling it. Now, of course, when it comes to grave matter, it is damaging us, but it's not as damaging as the actual wound. The actual wound is what's compelling me to do it. And so, so, so when it comes to confession, to be able to start asking God or to start thinking, Instead of just reacting, ah, oh, here I am falling to this stupid addiction again. What is the matter with me? I'm such an idiot. Gosh, I know better. I'm such an idiot. Why do I do this over and over again? I know that if I have more than two drinks and I'm going to have 20 drinks or whatever it is that, that is the problem. Um, or I know if I start talking, talking bad about this person and I'm going to talk about this other person and that other person or I'm just going to blot out all this information that I shouldn't. If, we're, if gossip happens to be one of those grave problems. But the problem is, again, what's running it? What's at the root? This wound that we have to be in control, that we have to manage it somehow. So, but again, we have not because we ask not. We're not asking for help with this. We're not even, we don't even, we don't even care. What we care about is stopping this. Why? Because we're embarrassed because we hate having this kind of 
addictive cycle. We hate being embarrassed by our brokenness. And so we don't like looking bad. Why don't we like looking bad? Because if we think we look bad, then we are bad, then again, we've lost control. We don't look good. And this is, again, that programming that we got from our parents. We're supposed to fix ourselves. We're supposed to manage ourselves. So I hope this is making sense. So confession then, the main thing we have to start confessing is this pride, this wound, this original sin, this belief that we have to manage it ourselves. We got to fix it. No, we don't. We need to be humble. We need to mourn and, and ask for the ability to let go of the control, being meek, um, or not try to wield it. And so, and the other thing we need to confess, that again is a root problem, is our hatred for suffering. We don't like it. We hate it. I know I do. I still, it's on my confession every time I go. I hate this. I don't like it. And I want to repent of it. You know, since I became aware of this, just to, I'd say, just to become a few, a few years ago, I became aware of it because I was asking God to show me <laughs> these root problems. And he did. And it's like, I have this deep-seated hatred for suffering. I don't like it. But since I started confessing that, it's like, I've actually started to feel this, I've made a little bit of friends with it. I can think, oh, I'm running late for this appointment, and I'm not beating myself up anymore. I'm actually going, oh, this is a chance to get humiliated. This is a chance to embrace humility and get closer to God. It's like, wow, that's really cool. Again, I didn't try that. I didn't intellectually tell myself that. I used to and beat myself up for my inability to do it. But now I get this, oh, I've received the theological virtue of hope from asking and asking and asking, taking my pain, and I get to think, oh, I, I'm going to be okay. God's actually going to take care of this. I can show up, and if they want to judge me to be a flake because I'm late, that's between them and God. I'm, it's true. I am a flake. Ask my wife. <laughs> so it's, it's okay. I don't need to fix that. And there's so much freedom in that. But this is, this is where we go when we start asking, begging, seeking, and knocking, as it were. So, so yeah, the, the hatred, confessing that. The other thing is confessing our lack of belief in this pain. Because, again, why do we hate the pain so much? Because we don't actually believe in the power of the cross. Remember the remembrance, remembering what the cross can do, how he can turn our suffering into a gift? We don't actually believe in that. I mean, intellectually, we think we, okay, yeah, it's plausible, it's, it's doable, it seems um, like, it's, like I'm supposed to, but when it comes down to our actual pain, we don't believe it, sadly. And how do we, how do we so how do we get this belief? We have to ask. It's just that simple. We have not because we ask not again. So, so that's the third thing, is this um, confessing this lack of belief, this lack of faith, or if we don't actually believe, or this lack of hope, we don't actually believe it works for us, or this lack of love, actually feeling his presence. Because if we really believed in the love of God, the all-powerful God loves us unconditionally, then the faith and hope are no-brainers. <laughs> but we don't actually believe in that love. So these are the things we need to start repenting of if we want to get at these wounds, I mean, the pain symptoms of the soul. Um, 
that we talked about. So, um, so for confession, confessing this, this pride that we need to control it, our hatred for suffering, and our lack of belief that this suffering can, in fact, be transformed as he showed us he could do on the cross. And the last thing that we need to confess is our lack of belief in the power of the Eucharist, in the power of the Mass. It's just, we just don't really believe. I mean, intellectually, we kind of know, hopefully, that that's the body and blood of Christ, and then when he comes into us, we become more like him. Okay, we've heard that. We know that's a reality. But when it comes to these wounds or these pain symptoms of our soul, there's not a connection there. When we go to Mass, and that's my third tool, is Mass itself. This is the most neglected, even more so because people show up for Mass all the time, but they're not tapping into this power. I remember the first time I received Holy Communion, the very first reception, it was just like, again, something I'd been working at for years. All of a sudden, it was like, huh, it's, I feel different. So it was reminding me of that, uh, that scene from the, uh, the X-Men, when uh, it's uh, X-Men 2. When, um, are any X-Men fans in here? One, two? <laughs> no, really, raise them up, X-Men fans. Oh, gosh, only a few. Well, anyway, the guy that controls metal, Magneto, <laughs> he, this guy comes into his presence, and uh, all of a sudden, this other guy had sh you know, shot some metal into his back, to the security guard, where he was in this prison where there was no metal. And Magneto's like, he can sense when metal's around. Fantasy, of course. But anyway, so he can sense when metal's around. It's like, oh my gosh, something's different. I feel a power. And of course, he can extract this metal out of this guy's body and, and escape from the prison because he can manipulate metal. But it was like, when I saw that, I thought, oh my gosh, this reminds me of the Eucharist. It's like, I feel this power. I feel something's definitely different. Something's like, something's here that wasn't here before. I have a power inside of me that didn't used to be there, and now it's there, and it can rescue me. Like it rescued Magneto. Anyway, only X-Men fans would really appreciate that. <laughs> so, anyway, this is such an amazing power. I remember my buddy who came into the church shortly after me, my, my long-term buddy, because I knew him when I was, since I was 19, and he said the same thing. Because, again, both of us, since we were eh, pretty uh, rabid anti-Catholics, we had to know everything was true about the Catholic Church, him even more so than me. Um, I was just way more desperate than he was, but he was really an intelligent guy. I mean, can you imagine somebody who reads all the Vatican II documents before he comes into the church? <laughs> it's like, uh, and understands them. And... Um, actually end up talking to a bishop about them. It's like, okay, okay, I can become Catholic now. <laughs> but anyway, this guy had the same response. First reception of Holy Communion. I know he wouldn't mind if I shared with you, but he has, he's a, um, a pretty active perfectionist, and he's always kind of, well, bluntly put, hated people. Um, he didn't like being around people, um, and yet he worked in ministry, serves people, you know. <laughs> but he was a, he's a pretty strong introvert, and so after he's around people for so long, just can't stand being around him anymore. And whenever he'd have to go to a group where um, 
he would have to just be around people for a long time. It would just be like nails on the chalkboard to him. He just couldn't stand it because he just didn't like being around people because they talk about dumb things, they act dumb, and, of course, he was super intelligent, really smart, really unusually smart, and so he just hadn't had any patience for people. But anyway, I'm sure there's a few of you that might relate to that. But he said to me, after he received Holy Communion for the first time, it was like, Brian, I couldn't believe it. I was in this group, and it wasn't like I was happy to be there, but there was no more nails on the chalkboard. I was just there. And it was like, oh, my gosh, again, that something's different. It was the life of God inside of him that was never there before. But again, Catholics, so sadly, they just take this for granted. They've had it their whole life. They don't even pay attention to it. They just go up and receive Holy Communion. They have no idea the gold mind of transformation. St. Thomas Aquinas says, one reception of Holy Communion is enough to completely convert us, to give us the beatific vision. We can actually have our... Our, our faith and our hope eyes open to the degree that we could see heaven like St. Paul caught up into the third heaven, whatever that means, um, if we were totally receptive to this gift of Holy Communion. But, of course, we're not. Why? Because we're wounded with those wounds that I've been talking about. We don't actually believe it. So how do we turn that around? Any, any guesses? How do we turn that around? Ask. There we go. <laughs> That's it. That's that simple. That this theological virtue to believe in this power of communion, this theological virtue of hope, to believe it actually works for me, that he can transform my disaster into resurrection, into union, into freedom. Again, when we know the truth, the truth sets us free. But we're in prison because we don't know the truth. But we think we know it, so we're not asking. Oh, we already know all that stuff. We're not asking and so this is how we stay perpetually stuck with these wounds, these beliefs, because we're not asking for them. We're instead, we're asking for what? Control. God, you need to fix this. You need to fix that person. You need to fix this person. You need to take this habit away. You need to you know, stop this pain, um, fix my loneliness. You need to, that's what you need to, if you could just do that, God, I'd be happy. And then I would know that you love me. It just doesn't work. It does not work as most of you probably know, because you've prayed those kinds of prayer before, and they don't get a lot of traction, generally speaking. Because again, God loves us more. He would rather see us in pain and have the chance of us getting to him than us kind of thinking he's okay and we're still stuck. He'd rather us hate him. I never remember the, I always remember the, uh, the Batman movie, um, the second one. I'm a bit of a movie goer. <laughs> anyway, uh, any, any Batman fans? Yeah. Ah, there we go. All right. <laughs> this will work better. Okay, so in the second um, Christian Bale Batman one, um, or maybe in the third one, anyway, Batman's going after um, with vengeance the people that killed his, what he thought was going to be his wife. Um, and he's going after these people with a vengeance and he's killing himself. And Alfred finally tells him, hey, this gal, what was her name? Um, Rachel. Rachel, she did not pick you. She picked the mayor. She didn't want to be with you. And he, Batman looks at Alfred. What's that? The district attorney, right. And so um, Harvey Dent, yeah. So he picked Harvey, didn't want you. And Batman's face twists up. He was in, not in the Batman getup, he was Bruce Wayne at the time. 
He looks at Alfred and he says, why on earth would you ever tell me that? And he says, because I care more about you than I care about you hating me. It's like, oh, I just started tearing up. It's like, oh my gosh, that's the love of God right there. That's, that's pure love. It's like, he, it's like we only, only God loves us that way. Because how, how often do we love our loved ones in a way that's going to make them hate us, but we know we're doing the right thing? Well, most of us don't have the virtue to, to wield that. And that's why, again, it's Alfred uh, was this godlike character who saves him as a boy and as the orphan, all that stuff. But anyway, very, very powerful stuff. But this is what's at stake for us with the reality of God's love that most of us are completely detached from. Because why? We don't ask for that. We're busy asking for control or not inviting him into this pain like the stuff I've been over. So in the Mass, there's a couple of things that we have to step into. The first one is, what are we really longing for? I mean, in anxiety and depression and loneliness, all of them have one thing in common. We're all longing for or missing from or anxious about relationship. Because again, the needs of the soul are all relationally driven. And so this longing for relationship, this longing for this love that satisfies, that's what we long for. And so when we're in the Mass, this reality of the Mass is all of the angels, saints, who are completely filled with the love of God, we have access to, and we have access to the touch of God himself. We all long for touch. And this is one of those things that we don't ask for. Everyone longs for touch, that healthy, respectful, good touch. We can get that touch every time we receive Holy Communion, the touch of God himself. But again, are we asking for the eyes of faith and the hope to take that in? No, we're asking for somebody else's touch. We're fantasizing about somebody else's touch. We don't care about God's touch, why? the wounds to our soul that believe that we have to manage it ourselves. I hope this is making sense because um, this, is, this is what's at stake when it comes to these psychologically hidden brainwashing kind of programming in us that keeps us hidden from God, that sustains these pain symptoms of the soul. Um, so intimacy with heaven, recognizing that, okay, God is here and he's present. He's present with us. And not only God, but all these saints, all these people that we can have relationships with are here, present. When we talk about icons, whether they be statue or pictures, the ancient church used to call them windows to heaven because we're entering into heaven. That's what the mass is. And so, and we go there into heaven to touch, to have an intimate connection with Jesus. And so, again, if we start asking for this kind of intimacy, we can begin receiving it. Most of the time we're not pushing it away. Inadvertently, of course, but effectively. And so to start asking, God, help me to tap into this power of relationship here in the Mass. Help me to do that. Help me to feel your touch, this connection that I long for and this emptiness. And the next one is to actually beg for the power of this Eucharistic reality, to, to be able to tap into this deeper intimacy that's missing from us. Because again, in relationship, one of the global problems is I work with um, marital couples often and come to my office and inevitably, the problem is in a nutshell, 
very simple. Both couples have gotten, they've shown up to the relationship without enough love to give and a high expectation that they will receive. And they need to receive more than they actually can give. And now they may not see that, but their spouse can plainly see it. <laughs> it's really obvious. The spouse knows that, okay, this, this guy or this woman is selfish. They're not taking care of me, and I need them to take care of me. They're not doing it. They're not doing it right. They're not doing it well enough, and I'm upset about it. Or sometimes the spouse that isn't doing the job shows up and says, I'm not cutting it. I'm no good. I'm not, I'm not doing what I need to be doing for my spouse. And... I'm um, really upset with myself. I've never been able to be a good friend or make a good connection. I don't know how to do it. And so they're ticked off at themselves and trying to fix themselves. So anyway, going there and trying to fix a problem. But anyway, the, the, so when it comes to tapping into this love power, we can actually go to this powerful source of love, take it in, and then show up to the relationship and not have an empty tank and be demanding that this other person meet my need because, well, it's okay for them to meet some of it. It's appropriate. And that's, you know, what especially Catholic marriage should be about. But they can't do it all the time. And the good news is if they did, then they would become our God. But they can't. And that's the good news of marital relationship. That's why it's called the sacrament of holy matrimony. It exposes our deeper need from God. And the one person on the planet who's committed to trying to help that problem can't do it. So now who are we left with? We're stuck with God again, <laughs> which, again, that's the good news of that pain. The pain is turning us to the one who can actually meet our need, not someone who's claiming to be able to or who would even like to be able to but can't. So this is the power of this reality of the Eucharist. We can actually get that love if we're asking for it and if we're willing to look at and have these ways that we're pushing him back exposed. So, and then the, the third one that I want to share is, now I've talked about some really, I think, fascinating stuff that I just feel graced to have discovered myself from lots of suffering, lots of time in front of the Blessed Sacrament, begging for these things. I, I I picked up some of this stuff in books, um, but when it comes to this about the anxiety and the depression, the loneliness stuff, it's mostly I've just gotten from being there and begging for it. And um, and there are people that write about it, which I I can I recommend some of these people to you that write about it brilliantly. But so the last one is that we need to ask for again is the simple thing of the power to even have a desire to beg for this. Because most of us, honestly, I know for me, I didn't want this. I didn't want these deeper truths. I just wanted my problems fixed. And so I had to ask God, okay, clearly, you don't want these problems to go away. They're here for a reason. And again, when I first started going, I had, I had lost all hope. That's why I was so desperate to go in this little room with this thing that looked like a cracker I was that desperate, and I didn't believe in it. But the pain had forced me to give up on every other avenue that was possible. And so to start recognizing that even the power to believe that, the power to, to want to go there, 
I mean, that, that desire in me, because I went, for, Lent was just the beginning at, uh, when, I, when I was first thinking of, okay, I might become Catholic. Lent was beginning, and this guy on the radio told me about Eucharistic Adoration. I'd never heard of it. So I said, okay, I'm going to go there, and I'm just going to see what happens. But I was so desperate, I knew I had to make a commitment. So I decided to go for all of Lent five days a week for an hour. Like I said, I was, I was hurting pretty bad, so I'd be willing to make a desperate um, kind of a move like that. And besides, it was so miserable at home, any excuse to get away was good, honestly. <laughs> that was another piece of it for me. But So I made this commitment, and, and it was extremely powerful. Like I said, I, that's another story in itself. But what happened there, by me showing up and begging and doing a few of the things that I've talked about, mostly the morning thing, and I just started to realize something's different. But I even had to ask God. I would lay there in bed and think, oh, I don't want to go. It's early. It's just sometimes I'd get up at 4.30 in the morning or 5.30, depending on what time I was starting to work and how far I had to drive or whatever because I kind of went all over the place for my job. Sometimes I have to get up at crazy hour early, I mean crazy early hour, <laughs> and I remember laying in bed and thinking, okay, I can either get another hour of sleep or an hour and a half because I had to drive like 20, 30 minutes to get to adoration. I can either lay here and get another hour of sleep or I can go commune, potentially, because I didn't completely believe, I can potentially commune with the relationship that I long for. If it exists in Christianity, I was pretty convinced if it existed in Christianity, it had to be in the Catholic Church. I had gotten to that point, but I wasn't sure it was there either, but it's like I was willing to give it a try because I'd been a Christian all of my life, and I had certain degree of investment in the Christian faith. So I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. But I'd lay there in bed and think, okay, I can either lay here and get another hour and a half of sleep, or I can, when the, when the alarm go off, of course, hit the snooze bar. You know, you hit the snooze bar and you think, do I really need to get up this early? I don't really want to get up this early. Is it really that important? So I'd having that conversation. Okay, I can either have this mystical potential connection with God himself, who could potentially meet the needs of my soul, or... I could get another hour and a half of sleep. Hmm. I'd get up. Because I already knew the sleep didn't work. <laughs> Tried that enough. But anyway, so that last one is asking for God even for the desire to want it, the desire to pursue it, the desire to pursue what these beliefs are and these, these wounds to my soul, to discern what those are and to be asking God to get rid of them and let, letting go of my my compulsivity to manage it myself. We have to ask for these things, even for the desire. And so that's the last thing for the mass. So that's, um, that is all I have to say. I could, yeah. Okay, so, uh, so uh, we're gonna do Q&A if you want. Coming back. question is, what about those who have been hurt by either people in the church or the church in general? How do we address those wounds, especially when there are people who may have just fallen away from the faith in that respect? Great question. Excellent question. So, again, what I, the comments I made about marriage, 
the reality is, and Jeremiah, we just heard this in the mass readings a few, a few weeks ago, cursed is the man who trusts in human beings. And he goes on to just define this curse about how bad it is. And so, so this is something that, again, we're compelled to think that people in the church somehow can be Christ to us. They can meet the needs of our soul, and they just can't. They just can't do it. And this is an example of whenever people in the church hurt us, it's just this, this horrible reminder that we, don't, we aren't here to worship and serve human beings. I don't care if they're bishops or priests or whoever. We're here. They're supposed to point us to Christ. And how do they most vividly point us to Christ? Two ways. One is by their conversion. And we can see what's possible by their conversion. And the other way they every bit as profoundly point us to is by their abysmal failure and their inability to be Jesus to us. We need Jesus. We don't need another human being. And so this is a simple answer to it. But again, we have to ask God, help me to believe that you can turn this despicable disaster, this, this uh, terrible wound, into something good. Because Jesus himself was betrayed by the religious people of his day. He was betrayed by his brethren and into the hands of their enemy. And so, so this is what we have to be able to say that prayer, Jesus, teach me how to offer this pain up with yours, to join this pain with your pain. And it's the same thing with our, uh, not just parental caregivers, but church caregivers, the same thing. It can and will be transformed, but we have to ask. Next question. How do you know if the wound is fully healed? What sign would you indicate that you're over this wound? Because I know you mentioned about the repetitiveness in our thoughts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what would some like sure signs or like good signs be like, okay, we're probably over this wound and we're working on a different wound? Okay, great question. It's very simple, actually. Um, when you, um, have you ever broken a bone in your body? Okay. And how did you know when it was healed? It wasn't hurting anymore. <laughs> and to some degree, but then the doctor might have said, now you're going to have to not, you can't have full strength yet. You don't want to strain it or push it too bad until some time goes by. Um, but, but the reality is the pain stops. The pain stops. The reactivity just gets minimized. Um, you just aren't uptight about it anymore. You have this sense of peace when it comes to that wound being bumped into. It's kind of like, you know, I like the example I always use is when an, someone has an ingrown toenail. If somebody steps on that ingrown toenail, they, they collapse in pain. They can't manage it. But if they step on the other toe, the one that's not injured, it's like it hurts a little, but it's not. it doesn't fold you up on the floor in pain. You're like, oh, that kind of hurts. And you can still stay curious and open, and you can have a discussion. Hey, you stepped on my toe there instead of, ah. Uh, so that's kind of the difference between that. Uh, does that answer your question? Reactivity. <laughs> All right. You spoke about uh, the uh, unconscious wound and original sin. Mm -hmm. I, I got kind of lost there, and, and I'm not quite getting what you were talking about. There. Okay. So the, the, the unconscious wound of original sin is, again, that belief that God doesn't have my back. I have to manage it on my own. And the reason it's unconscious is because, again, like I was talking about, when we're children, 
our parents didn't habitually and regularly point us to God as the one who manages or, or makes up for our inadequacy. As a general rule, they say, hey, you need to get your act together. You need to work harder at that. And you need to, uh, you know, try harder. You're not trying hard enough. And so this compulsivity is we like to try harder instead of just saying, God help me. I, again, like Adam and Eve should have done in the Garden of Eden, they should have been able to say, hey, wait a minute. I'm not going to try to manage this myself. God has promised he would give us everything we need. And so, again, depression, anxiety come from trying to control something we can't control because we're not detached. And so that's why this is connected to the original sin wound is that we're trying to control something. We're trying to get our need met in a way that we can't actually do it. And why do we need to do it? Because we don't believe God's going to do it. We can't just sit with the emptiness, wait for God to come to us. We try to manage it ourselves. So this is more like an anonymous comment than question, because mm-hmm. when you were talking about the X-Men, and that was kind of like falling flat, because like we don't have too many X-Men fans among us, of which I am one. Okay. Um, uh, there's a, you know the Beauty and the Beast song, something there that wasn't there before? I feel like that would have been a great analogy mm. to like lead in that might have been more attractive to the ladies in the crowd, possibly. You know, yes. something that wasn't there that wasn't there before, you know? Right, yes. Yeah, uh-huh. there you go. Same thing. Use that in future. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. I like it. Next question. <laughs> Anybody? Uh, so I'm just wondering when you there's this balance, I think, between being that control freak, but then not doing anything. So how do you find that in between? Because I really... I love it. That would help. Excellent question. That's what I remember thinking when I was... Uh, earlier on with this stuff, and, and even to, to some degree now, because I've owned my own business for many, many years, and I'm used to being that proactive, you know, take the bull by the horns, manage this problem, and get after it. And so I always thought to myself, well, if I'm just depending on God for everything, then what do I do? And so the answer is this stuff I talked about. We're supposed to try at that. And primarily, what's that? Asking, seeking, knocking when we feel this inner frustration of, I'm trying to control something I can't control. Oh, okay, so that, and I can't do it. So you step back and say, okay, what part of this problem do I control? And sometimes the only answer is asking, teach me how to be patient. What are you trying to teach me in this? But sometimes there's, oh, there's something tangibly that I can do. I can actually go and be vulnerable and tell this person that, they may not know how they hurt me. They may not know. They may want to know. But I don't want to go tell them because I'm angry at them. I don't believe they'll believe they'll just blow me off. And I don't want to take the chance. So, so we don't bother doing it because we don't ask God, God, grant me the vulnerability. If you want me to be vulnerable and go talk to this person, give me the strength to do it. We just turn in on ourselves and manage it ourselves. And that's kind of an apathetic kind of, ah, if God wants it fixed, he'll fix it. No, if God wants me to do something, move me, God, to do that. And help me to be open to that. Help me to be vulnerable and to be courageous if you're calling me to do that. But when we start getting vulnerable with God, then we can start trusting our instincts and taking actions. And again, the beautiful part about that, we take an action and we most of the time don't take action because we're afraid we're going to mess it up worse. But that's the beauty of 
when we remember the power of the cross. We can't mess it up. God can turn this disaster into something good, even if we go mess it up, as long as we're, you know, of course, doing it with a, with a good conscience. Because as St. Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds further. So we can't mess it up. It's just, it's just an amazing, remarkable reality of Christianity that I still get very excited about. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay. Let's, uh, you want to lead us in a closing prayer, sure. Brian? Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gift of your love. Keep us mindful in the midst of our pain, the free gift of this love. Grant us a desire to want it. Help us to realize that whatever suffering, anxiety, depression, and loneliness we have, that you have a plan to transform it just as you did on the cross. Grant us deeper faith and hope to tap into this love. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Big, big hand, Brian Kelser. Veritas is sponsored by St. Joseph Morello Parish in Granite Bay, California, and St. Mel Parish in Fair Oaks, California. Our podcast features recordings of live talks delivered to young adults packed into the best pub in California, Monk's Cellar. If you're age 18 through 39 and find yourself in the Sacramento area, join us at a live event. Learn more at catholicveritas.com.